Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 29 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 21st of August. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week? Well, first of all, we're going to have a chat with uh, Seattle-based coach Lisa Quast. And she's going to be talking to us all about how to bring the best in out the best in people. And she's also going to be talking to us about women in business. And uh, there's some very interesting observations which are quite, actually quite relevant to the Australian market. And then we're going to talk to economist Saul Eslake. All about the one, the devaluation of the one, and the impact it's having on the market. Yeah, mostly which is frightening, perhaps with not much reason. It's just that it hasn't happened before. Anyway, let's now talk to Lisa Quast. Now, Lisa Quast, uh, how did you get into coaching? Well, I was an executive vice president at a Fortune 500 company, and other people, especially women, would come to me and say, what did you do to get to where you were? Because I'd like to get into management, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. So I would give them little exercises to do things like identifying what their strengths were or their weaknesses and have them go do that. And we would sit down and then have a coffee chat and talk about that afterwards. And that kind of morphed into just a lot of coaching and mentoring of others. So uh, what are the big demands now for people coming to you for coaching? Well, the big one was when the economy crashed. I had been doing a lot of consulting work prior to that. And all of a sudden, I started getting a lot of calls and emails from people who had been downsized. So they got laid off because companies were downsizing and they hadn't updated their resume or looked for a job in 10 or 15 years. And so many things had changed that they kind of needed a refresher course, or as I call it, kind of a back to the basics on what should they do to find a job. So you were basically training them to get back into the workforce. I was, and it, it was really fun. And it was, it was just heartwarming because there were so many people who were so frustrated and just so nervous because they hadn't been a job seeker in such a long time. And so being able to help other people one-on-one -on -one was just absolutely incredible and making them feel really confident and like they had someone on their side believing in them that they could find another job. Now, uh, um, what, what, are the, um, what are the big trends now you see in coaching? Well, I'm not so sure that, that I'm seeing real trends, but I see kind of segments to the market. For example, there's the college kids who are going to be graduating and then they're looking for their first real job, so to speak. So there's coaching in that area. I also see coaching for a lot of people at the beginning of their career, where it's what I would call situational coaching, where they have an issue that comes up in the workplace and they're not really sure what to do or how to handle it. And they don't feel comfortable talking about it with a coworker or a boss. And so it, being a coach, you know, they can call me up and we can have a chat over the phone about it. Then there are also people who are wanting to switch their careers or moms or dads who were stay at home taking care of the kids for a few years and now they want to go back. You know, a lot of different segments is what I would say I see to the market. Lisa, there's a lot of debate here in Australia at the moment about the lack of women in more senior posts in corporates and you know, larger SMEs. What's the scene in, a, in uh, the United States? Well, I think early in my career, I saw that a lot. And I say that because when I was uh, beginning my career, I kept looking around for people that I could use as coaches or as mentors myself. And there really weren't a lot of women. Now there are more women. So 
I think there's two things. Companies are really realizing that women are 50% of the population, basically, and they need to take advantage of the brain power that that other 50% of the population can provide. And so they're purposely trying to have programs that help women achieve their career dreams. On the other side, I think women are getting more comfortable in the workplace. I mean, let's face it, we haven't been in the workplace as long as men. So we've been kind of at a disadvantage in the past. And so a lot more women are helping other women and sharing their experience and their knowledge and really encouraging women to go after whatever job that they want, even if it's a kind of a job that maybe isn't typically thought of for a female. Right. I mean, in Australia, this is there's still a huge issue about uh, gender pay gaps and uh, women and tends to the numbers tend to be skewed so that women tend to move into uh, lower paid jobs, for example, in gross sectors like uh Finance, financial services and mining, for example, you'll find women there, but they tend to be working in the administration areas. And so they're not earning that much. Uh, is that a situation over in the States? It is. And I think it's a, a similar situation all over the world. And it's, it's really funny when you look at that pay gap, because there isn't a simple fix for it. A lot of women have ins and outs, as I call it, in their career, and it might be to raise kids or it might be to take care of elderly or sick parents. And some of those kind of career off-roads and back-on roads can actually impact how much a female makes in their career and where she's at in her career path. Another thing that also impacts it is women in general, there have been studies done, women tend not to ask for more money. So when they're initially negotiating for a job, let's say, women tend to accept the first job offer as opposed to negotiating it, right? Which I'm sure you two would negotiate. You would say, well, okay, that's where they're coming in at, but I want to be higher. I'll go higher and we'll meet in the middle. A lot of women tend not to have that mindset. And that's one of the things I work with a lot of university students, especially women in the Seattle area and other places around the world is really thinking about trying to negotiate for what you believe your value and your worth is and not being afraid to negotiate. So I like to teach them all the different tricks on how you can negotiate your initial salary or even ask for a pay raise as you move throughout your career. Coaching would be really important for uh, women in that area, wouldn't confidence building, that sort of thing? Absolutely. And, And it is funny, right? Because when you think about it, professional athletes all have coaches. So why wouldn't people in business have a coach? You know, you could hire a coach at any point in time. It doesn't have to be for an extended period of time. It could be you hire a coach to teach you certain skills like how to get a pay raise, how to approach your boss about a promotion. All those different kinds of things are things that coaches can help with. And what what's required of the person hiring the coach? I mean, what, what are they required to do? I mean, I would imagine that'd be the ones having to do all the work. So there's two things. First, there's the work beginning finding a coach. So let's say that somebody's in business and they decide they, they would like to get a coach. It's first doing the research to find someone that's a good fit. A good example is I was giving a presentation, uh, a training presentation at Microsoft a while back, and someone asked the question, 
how come I can't find a good career coach? And so I had her explain, well, what happened in the past? And she said, well, I ended up, it turned out she was something called a life coach. And she had been a stay-at-home mom and, you know, went into that. But I want to move up in Microsoft or in another large corporate kind of company. And she couldn't help me with any of that. And so there's kind of that disconnect in that situation. You have to be able to find a coach that has been there, done that. If in her case, for example, I could have been a good fit for her because as a female, I made it to the executive level in a Fortune 500 company in a very male-dominated industry. And that's what she wanted to do. So we would have had a lot of similarities to talk about and I could have coached her really well on that. So, so the issue is you have to find the right coach. You have to find this person who suits you. Exactly. So if you want to start your own company, let's say, then find someone that has been an entrepreneur and started one or two of their own companies because they would be the best coach. It's really about conducting the right work ahead of time to find somebody that's a good fit. And then in the coaching process, yes, absolutely. The person being coached is going to have a lot of homework right? Because you'll have assessments you'll be doing with your coach. The coach will give you homework. They'll give you things to think about and come back with comments. So there's, there really is a lot of homework. It's like going back to college in a way. Lisa, the Seattle is a big IT town. You've got Microsoft down the road and loads of other IT companies. Here in Australia, the girls don't tend to go into IT. Maybe it's because the geeks are too pimply but uh, at <laughs> university. But uh, it is a thing. They do tend to stay away. What's the scene around you at the moment? I think just because I'm in the Pacific Northwest where you're right, there are a lot of IT companies. We have a lot of women's associations and women's group that purposely support women in IT careers or support them in programming and try to get to the, the, the women when they're young, when they're in the elementary school age. And that way they can show them that programming isn't all math. And I think that's sort of the thing that has scared off a lot of women is they think it's all about math when there's so much more to it. But that really is the similar thing with every job out there that you're scared of, but you're interested in, right? Finding someone that's in that industry, that's in that job and being able to sit down and talk to them to find out what it took for them to get into it or to be successful can really be an eye opener and help break down those barriers. And uh, that's all part of it. So you, you, you as a person have to find the right fit with someone and, that, and when, from there you'll be in a good position to be coached. Absolutely. Lisa Quas, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. People should listen because uh, particularly on the, on the thing of female participation in business. Absolutely. It's still below where it ought to be. Okay, now Saul Eslake. We started by asking Saul for his view of the Chinese economy, especially in light of the recent change in exchange rates. Well, there's no doubt that China's economy is slowing. In my view, that's not the most likely explanation for the move on the currency during August. Rather, I think that it was a desire on the part of the Chinese authorities to make the currency more flexible in responding to market forces. Although 
the Chinese currency has been relatively stable against the US dollar over the last three years because the US dollar itself has been rising against other currencies. The peg of the yuan to the US dollar has meant that the Chinese currency has risen quite significantly against those other currencies of its competitors in Asia and elsewhere around the world. In trade-weighted terms, since the beginning of 2012, the Chinese currency has risen by close to 20%. Even with the small move that occurred in mid-August, the Chinese currency is still more than 10% higher in trade-weighted terms than it was in August 2014. And particularly ahead of the expected move by the Federal Reserve to start raising US interest rates after some seven years of keeping rates at zero later this year, the Chinese probably wanted to give themselves a means to provide prevent their currency from rising even further against the yen, the won and other Asian currencies if, as most people think, uh, rising US interest rates will put further upward pressure on the US dollar. In addition, the IMF had just a couple of weeks before the People's Bank of China took this step, encouraged the Chinese authorities to allow greater flexibility in setting the exchange rate. They want to have the included in the basket of currencies that make up the IMF's special drawing right, something which the Chinese seem to be keen on having. So the Chinese have to make the yuan more flexible in order to get into that basket? Yes, they do. And the IMF's been quite explicit about that. The other currencies which presently make up the SDR are all freely floating exchange rates and have been for quite some time. So it's not unreasonable for the IMF to ask the same of China if they're to be accorded the same status. But it's not just a question of succumbing to pressure from the IMF. The Chinese authorities have themselves been saying for some time that they recognise that allowing a more freely floating exchange rate, one in which market forces rather than bureaucratic preferences determine the exchange rate is consistent with their own long-term vision for a greater role for market forces in shaping the Chinese economy. And it's a well-established principle of economics, one from which China's no more exempt than any others, that it's simply not possible for any economy to have a fixed exchange rate, an independent monetary policy, and an open capital account. And if China wants an independent monetary policy and an open capital account, then ultimately it's going to have to accept a fully floating exchange rate as well. There's no hurry to get to that point immediately. And indeed, one of the lessons of the Asian crisis of the mid to late 1990s is that premature opening up of the capital account can have very unpleasant consequences. So the Chinese have no desire to repeat that experience. But I think this move on the part of the PBOC that was widely interpreted at the time as an explicit devaluation of the yuan is more sensibly seen, in my view, as another step along the way to a fully convertible and freely floating Chinese exchange rate. Uh, The view of the market at the time was that this would unleash deflationary forces around the world. Uh, What's your view about that? Well, I think that was an initial reaction that subsequent events have shown most likely to be wrong. After all, if the Chinese were seeking to use currency depreciation as a way of bolstering economic growth, then they need to devalue the currency by a lot more than the 
roughly 3% on net, which it did in the week in which they took that decision. As I say, it's uh, in the context of currencies such as the Japanese yen uh, having fallen by almost 40% since Arbenomics began to influence its value. We've seen similarly large depreciations by the Malaysian ringgit, the Indonesian rupiah, the Korean won, and some of the other currencies in different parts of the world with which China competes in some respect, including the Brazilian real and the South African rand and uh, even the Russian ruble to some extent. So uh, the kind of move that the Chinese have made is pretty small beer in comparison with those. And to say that it's going to unleash deflation on the rest of the world is suggesting that the rest of the world is much more fragile place than I believe it is. Now, uh, the the Chinese would want to see the yuan become a global reserve currency, and uh, that flexibility would be part of that. Uh, Where do you see that travelling? Well, it's entirely reasonable for the Chinese to want their currency to play a role in the international financial system com- uh, that's consistent with their increasing importance in the global economy. Um, after all, the same sort of thing happened with the United States. Uh, the US became the world's biggest economy as measured by GDP in 1872. But it wasn't until the end of the Second World War in 1945 that the US dollar became became unquestioned as the world's principal reserve currency. Before the US got to that point, and obviously the outcome of the Second World War played a major role in it, but before the US got to that point, it needed to establish a much more stable banking system than it had by the 1870s. Indeed, the US didn't even have a central bank until 1911, and the desire to achieve greater use of the US dollar was one of the reasons for the establishment of the Federal reserve at that time. And there are some important lessons here for how quickly the Chinese currency will become as widely used as the US dollar became between the two wars, for example. For the yuan to become a truly accepted reserve currency, not only does China need to be a big economy and a major participant in the international trade system, which it is now, but its currency has to be freely convertible for investment transactions as well as trade transactions, which it isn't for the most part. And the rest of the world has to have much more faith in the stability and integrity of the Chinese banking system than it does at the moment. And that's something that's going to take a considerable period of time. The Chinese authorities are aware of all of these requirements and they're working gradually in that direction. But that pace is going to be governed by all the other objectives that the Chinese have for their economy and financial system. And including the lessons they've learned from the experience of other countries who've prematurely or too rapidly opened up their capital accounts to international transactions. And as the Asian countries did in the mid to late 1990s, experienced far more turbulence as a result than the Chinese would want to see for themselves. Over what time frame do you see the one moving to uh, reserve currency status? Well, the Chinese currency could become part of the SDR basket within the next 12 to 24 months, depending on how quickly they move towards allowing its value to be determined more by market forces and less by bureaucratic considerations. But I suspect that for the Chinese currency to be as widely used as, for example, the euro, the second most important reserve currency in today's world, uh, well, that's more likely to be a matter of somewhere between 10 and 20 years. And 
in the grand scheme of things, that shouldn't be seen as an inordinate delay. As I say, the US waited for between 30 and 70 years before, after it became the world's biggest economy, before its currency became the principal reserve currency in the world. Uh, most of the rest of the world has got a considerable amount invested in the US dollar as the principal unit of account, and changing it over to some other currency is not something that's going to happen quickly. Indeed, the most likely evolution of the international financial system over, say, the next half a century, in my view, is probably one in which uh, we have three currencies that are widely used for this purpose, uh, the euro, the US dollar, and the Chinese yuan, and probably each of them will be dominant in its respective region. And uh, so 10 to 20 years, we should be watching out for that space. Uh, that's right. Um, but these things don't happen overnight, except in situations such as uh, the Second World War that led to the immediate dominance of the US economy in the world and the US dollar in the international financial system. Hopefully, we're not going to see a repetition of those events in our lifetimes or our children's. So this is an evolutionary process rather than a revolutionary one. Saul like thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks thank for you. having me again. So what do you think about the one, the one, the renminbi, Leo? Well, he's saying it's going to take uh, 10 or 20 years before it becomes a recognised as a reserve currency, equal to that of a dollar and the euro, but we're, we're going to be in some very interesting times. Like the mills of God, things grind exceeding slow. Absolutely. Okay, now, Leon, the news. First, Japan's economy contracted in the last quarter as consumers and business cut spending and export tumbles. Japan's GDP fell and annualised 1.6% from January to March, ending two quarters of growth. And the slump in private sector demand came as exports to the US, Asia and Europe fell. And that undercut support for the world's third biggest economy. They're all saying it's a temporary thing, but if it isn't, you can expect more government stimulation. Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, Saul Eslake referred to that in, uh, in his session. That's right. Now, the International Monetary Fund has warned that China, the world's second biggest economy, faces what it calls a disorderly correction, followed by a slowdown if it holds back on market reforms. And in its annual assessment of China's economy, the IMF said it was satisfied that with the progress China was making away from a state control to a more market-focused economy. It also foreshadowed a 6.8% growth rate for China, which is lower than Chinese government's 7% target and way lower than the recent Chinese standards. But it says this is to be expected because China is transitioning its economy to a more sustainable footing. But Marcus Rodelauer, who's the head of the IMF mission to China, one of the authors of the review, said China had stayed the course of its reform agenda despite all the warning signs like the slowdown in manufacturing and all the share market up that's been going on this week. And he said unwinding state intervention to support falling share prices will lead to that disorderly correction. One point, though, is that the uh, share ownership in China is quite different from, say, in Australia or Europe or anywhere or the United States. And I don't know that it has as big an effect as we seem to think it is. Yeah, I think so. But uh, let's 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 take a look at and see what happens there. And meanwhile, after the Eurozone finance ministers approved the 86 billion euro, well, it's about 129.7 billion dollar Aussie bailout deal for Greece. The International Monetary Fund has called for Greece to get some debt relief and IMF Chief Christine Lagarde said Greek debt, which according to the European Commission the European Central Bank and European Bailout Fund will peak at 201% of GDP in 2016 is simply unsustainable. And the IMF said it won't participate in any bailout for Greece that doesn't include debt relief. In the meantime, 
Fitch Ratings has raised its credit grade, credit grade for Greece by one notch to triple C, saying the new bailout deal reached with the EU institutions has lowered the chance for new default. And it's just been approved by the German parliament overwhelmingly. That's right, except that Angela Merkel uh, does have problems in her party. That's right. And Walter Scherbel, who's the finance minister, who was long sceptical, saying, was saying, look, we have to give him a go, although no one knows if this will hold. It's 50-50 and not much better than that. Meanwhile, to Australia and um, Grolf, Grollo Group CEO Lorenz Grollo is now undertaking an exclusive due diligence on a $500 million portfolio of hotels, which includes the Intercontinental Hotel in Melbourne. And if a deal with Eureka Funds Management goes through, it will transform the Grollo family business, which began with Lorenz's grandfather Luigi Grollo in 1948, away from construction to investment and development. Now, of course, we all know the Intercontinental stands next to the Rialto Towers on Collins Street in Melbourne. It was built and developed by Mr Grollo's father, Reno, and his uncle, Bruno. It's one of Melbourne's most recognised landmarks. Now, the Grollo family owns half the Rialto in a joint venture with Kuwaiti-based St Martin's Property Group group based in London, and uh, securing the Intercontinental would facilitate mixed-use development across the Rialto forecard. More importantly, though, the negotiations over the Intercontinental could lead to a larger deal over Eureka's entire portfolio, which is now managing for a super fund investor, and that includes the 385 room Crown Plaza Hotel nearby on Spencer Street, standing on the banks of the Yarra, overlooking Crown Casino, the 210 Crown Plaza at Coogee Beach in Sydney, the 288 Holiday Inn at Potts Point, and the 300 room Crown Plaza in Canberra. So so that we could actually be seeing the transformation of the Grollo family. Yeah, well, uh, Daniel Grollo, the uh, Lorenzo's brother, is uh, he's got enough trouble with the CFMEU to uh, want to get the heck out of construction. I think so. I think so too. Now, Gary, following the federal court's decision setting aside environmental approval for Indian energy giant Adani's controversial $16.5 billion Carmichael mine, the Abbott government is bringing in laws to stop environmental groups challenging large developments in court. The Attorney General George Brandis is introducing amendments this week, repealing a section of Australia's environment laws that allows conservation conservation to challenge environmental approvals for mining projects and other large developments. And Brandis says that amendment would wipe from the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, the provision allowing radical green activists to engage in what he calls vigilante action to stop important economic projects. But I think they've got a bit of a problem, Gary, because it's actually also going to stop farmers from campaigning against the Shinua mine. That exactly right. And a certain comment from the press gallery suggests that uh, they're not going to get this through. Well, the other thing too is that there's a, there's a discrepancy here because a, a green activist group is vigilante. But people, and and you will set up laws to stop them. But you have an anti-wind farm group and you will bring in laws to help them. Yeah, help, yes. And so so there's something all over the place on this. I know, and, you know, and I hate to say it, well, I don't really, but it's just another tangle foot from the Abbott government. That's right, that's right. It is, it is, it is, it is. Now, the government says it's going to initiate a crackdown on multi multinational tax dodgers, and uh, that's according to Treasurer Joe Hockey. He's promised to put legislation to Parliament next month, and a Senate committee has released a report calling on the government to name and shame companies which avoid tax, and the government will go over 30 primarily offshore-based companies that aren't paying their fair share of tax, and the Development comes as an investigator claim multinationals trading in Australia funnel more than $30 billion to Singapore in one year to avoid tax. Good for Singapore. That's right, that's right. But at the same time, the Josh Frydenberg, the Assistant Treasurer, is bringing an amendment that will protect the identities of a thousand big companies to protect them from kidnapping. So we're talking about Australian companies. Oh, Australian companies that so are Gina doing Reinhardt's. it. I'm not sure I'd want to kidnap Gina anyway. I mean, she'd be too much trouble. No, 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 that's right. Now, global technology giant Apple is planning its first Australian dollar-denominated bond offering 
following a series of calls to debt investors this week. And Apple has tapped Goldman Sachs International, Deutsche Bank uh, and Commonwealth Bank of Australia to arrange the calls. Now, any Australian dollar raising would follow similar similar moves by Apple that use Japanese yen, Swiss francs, euros and Apple's central funding currency. Now, Apple has, what, something like $200 billion in cash. Why would it want to do this? And the reason is because it wants to avoid US taxes on its foreign earnings. Well, m- most of that $200 billion, at least the majority of it, is held outside of the United States. And to put it back into the US is going to swinging taxes. That's right. Now, Asiano, the... Uh Ports and Rails Company has accepted a revised $9 billion takeover from consortium backed by US-listed Brookfield Infrastructure Partners. It's from Canada, and Canadian-based Brookfield will secure a 55% stake in Asiano, while Brookfield sponsored and managed private funds will claim 23%, and two institutional partners will evenly split the 20, remaining 22%. So that's a big deal, and it just goes to show a lot of foreign companies are now swooping on Australian companies with the lower Australian dollar. Well, you're exactly right, and it's not only China. That's right. Well, Japan Post bought toll earlier this year. Exactly, uh, and the Canadian Pension Fund, Teachers Pension Fund, has got a lot of investment here in Australia. That's right, and of course, it's profit reporting season, Gary, and the profits are—it's a mixed bag. But so let's let's listen to what the profits are. Australia's biggest gold mine in Newcrest posted a statutory net profit of 546 million for the year after a loss of 2.2 billion. Rail freight operator Horizon posted a statutory full-year profit of 604 million, which is actually up 139% on the previous year's 253 million. In the year to June 30, Charter Hall Retail posted a statutory profit of 162.5 million, which is up 90.7% on the previous year's 85.2. Regenerative medicine company Mesoblast reported a wider full-year loss of 119.4 million compared with the $81 million loss the previous year. Finance and leasing company Flexi Group reported a 44% improvement on statutory profit to 82.7 million in the 12 months of June 30. In the six months of June 30, QBE's net profit was 488 million, which is actually up 24% on the previous year's 392 million. Dick Smith posted a full year net profit of 37.9 million, which is a massive 91.2% increase on the previous year's result. Australian medical diagnostics firm Sonic Healthcare posted a profit after tax of 363 million for the year to the end of June, which is actually down 5.6%. GPT posted a net profit of 421.9 million, which is up 75.4% of the previous year. Mineral Sands producer Iluca reported net profit of 20.4 million for the six months through to June, up from 11.7 million in the same period a year ago. Household fitting supplier GWA Group reported a net loss of 16.2 million compared to a net profit of 18.6 million a year before. Funeral company Invocare posted a first half profit of 18.46 million, an 11.3% decrease on the previous corresponding period. Infrastructure services Cardno posted a loss of 145.17 million in the year. Sydney-based investment firm Challenger posted a net profit of 200. 199 million for the 2015 financial year, which is down 12% on last year's result. Sydney Airport's net profit rose to 134.6 million in the first half to June 30, up from 53.9 million, aided by a 2.8% rise in international passenger numbers, most notably from China. Engineering and Maintenance Group Menadolphus, full year net profit after tax fell 28% to 105.8 million. ANZ unveiled a 5.4% billion dollar cash profit for the nine months of June 30, up 4% from a year ago. Fletcher Buildings net profit was New Zealand 270 million, 
versus uh, New Zealand $339 million in the previous financial year. Woodside posted a first half net profit of $679 million, which is down 38.6% in the previous corresponding period. The Reject Shop posted a full year profit of $14.2 million, which is down 1.9% on the previous year. Mining company Mount Gibson reported a net loss of $911.4 million for the year to June. That compared to a profit of $96.4 million a year before. Treasury Wine has bounced back into the black. They posted a net profit of $77.6 million in the year, compared with a loss of $100.9 million in the previous corresponding period. Steelmaker and iron ore miner, Arium, posted a net loss of $1.92 billion for the 12 months through to June, compared with a profit of $205.4 million the year before. Seek Posted a full year net profit of $281.2 million, which is up 44%. Mortgage Choice saw net profit after tax fall 4.8% to $18.856 million. Data storage company Recall posted a profit of $65 million for the year, which is up 55%. Illumina posted a net profit after tax of $122 million US which is actually up 357% on the same period last year when the firm posted a $47.4 million US loss. Stockland posted a full-year net profit of $903 million, which is up 71.4%. Retail Landlord Federation's full-year profit increased 68.7% to $675.1 million. Entertainment firm and theme park operator Ardent Leisure posted a net profit of $32.1 million for the full year to the end of June, which is down 34.4%. Seven West reported a net loss after tax of $1.89 billion. That compares with last year's profit of $149.2 million. And Perpetual Equity Investment Company reported a statutory profit of $3.7 million. And that's it for the week, Gary. Yeah, a very mixed bag, Leon. It's, uh, some of it's very healthy. Some of it looks even too healthy. Some of it, and some of it looks pretty bad. And some of it, quite a lot of it looks pretty bad indeed. So that's us for this week. And next week... Next week, we'll be talking to teacher Abdul Chohan. Yeah, he's the director of a school in Bolton in England. Interesting story about how they adopted modern technology, revived a school, in a way also revived the city of Bolton. In the meantime, you can catch up with us on Twitter at TalkingBiz, B-I-double-Z, or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.